This evening I'd like to talk about the path of the Bodhisattva. The spiritual journey is really founded upon the, the twin pillars of wisdom and compassion. Those two qualities can be likened to the two wings of a bird. They balance each other, they complement each other, and they nourish each other. And there really isn't any way that wisdom and compassion can be divorced from one another. As the Buddha says, the one who clings to the void and neglects compassion will not reach the highest awakening. The one who practices only compassion will not find release from suffering. Wisdom without compassion is the mind that is really disconnected from the heart. And when there's disconnection from the heart, what is lacking really is any depth of vision, of interconnectedness. And when, of course, the vision of interconnectedness is really not present within ourselves, then no matter how wise we are, at times we find ourselves lacking the power of transformation, the power to touch others, the power to touch ourselves. And detachment that is not balanced by love does not really have any possibility of healing. Wisdom without compassion very easily becomes a kind of spiritual invincibility, which easily degenerates into either passivity or withdrawal. We've probably encountered this kind of wisdom in ourselves or in others where we might have really so much good advice, a wealth of wonderful solutions and answers about how to heal the suffering in the world or how to bring about the end of suffering in ourselves. But somehow this wealth of well-intentioned advice doesn't really find any listener. Because when wisdom is there, and compassion is not. Empathy is also missing. A great mystic once said, of what avail or what use is the open eye if the heart is blind? Wisdom actually needs compassion. It is compassion that actually breathes life into wisdom. It is compassion that gives wisdom the power to touch and to transform that allows the understanding that grows within each one of us to really be gifted to others and to ourselves. But it is also true, just as much, that compassion also needs wisdom. It is insight, it's understanding, it's wisdom that brings equanimity and that brings courage to compassion. It is through wisdom, through insight, 
that really the compassion that we feel for others or the compassion we feel for ourselves finds the right action, finds the right words, the right direction, the right application. It is wisdom, insight, that dissolves separation between inner and outer, between I and you, between us and them. And it's that very same wisdom that dissolves also the value judgments that always shadow separation. The value judgments that tell us that one person or one thing is worthy of compassion and another is not. That one person or one thing is superior and worthy of our attention where another is not. All of these value judgments that make compassion conditional have only to do with the mind that lives in dualities. They have nothing to do with the heart and the mind that understands interconnectedness. It is when these separations really are dissolved that compassion is no longer than a response of mine to your suffering. It is no longer either even a response that I feel or that I direct towards myself. When there is separation, even when the heart responds to pain and there is separation, often what it's experienced is not so much compassion but pity. And compassion is in so many ways actually purified through wisdom. So that compassion is simply a movement, a response of the heart and the mind that embraces the painful, that embraces the difficult, that embraces suffering, wherever and in whomever it is found, without any thought or any kind of demand for result. As we travel this path ourselves, it's very important, I feel, not to think of compassion as some kind of incidental experience or even as some kind of desirable reward that we will gain as a result of either our own suffering or as a result that we will gain as a result of of wisdom. Neither is wisdom a product necessarily of meditation. It's very important to understand that meditation offers guarantees of neither wisdom nor compassion. It is the heart and the mind that is inspired to understand that finds wisdom and compassion. This is something we bring to meditation. It is not something the meditation brings to us. It is not something the meditation has the power to somehow create within us even. It is something that comes from within our own hearts and minds as we have the motivation and the passion to be awake. It is equally important not to regard wisdom as some destination that we will arrive at in the future 
after we've overcome certain things, or perfected certain things, or got rid of other things. The wisdom really has nothing to do with future times or arrival points. It is so easy for us, I feel, to think of both wisdom and compassion in capital letters, heavily underlined, headlines, big experiences, big breakthroughs or big openings that we will somehow know when we have become wise or we will somehow have a a point when we will register that yes, we have suddenly become compassionate. As long as we have these, these kind of lofty images, then in most always our images are projected into the future. And of course in that search for rainbows and the search for the elusive, we tend not really to examine what wisdom and compassion actually mean to us right now because those very words are so obscured by the images we dress them up in. When we think of wisdom, sometimes we have these very grand images, you know, of the Buddha, of Jesus, of great Zen masters, of people who wear uniforms that somehow say they're wise, people who've made a powerful impression on the world, or people who have become authorities for us. And we equally tend to think in compassion, of compassion in such lofty ways also, a very heroic and noble action or deeds. We've all heard the stories of the great sacrifices of bodhisattvas of the past. We think of Mother Teresa and the present and her dedication. We think of the forgiveness, the immense forgiveness some people have been able to find in their hearts in the midst of intense persecution. And we admire these people. And we are inspired to them and they offer to us that gift of inspiration. But we must be careful always that we do not become so lost in our admiration. That we forget to ask ourselves really what wisdom and compassion have to do with our own lives, our own hearts, our own journeys. What wisdom and compassion have to do with our relationship with this very moment that we're experiencing. What does it mean, really, to travel the path of the Bodhisattva? Traditionally, the Bodhisattva is described as being a person who has dedicated themselves to the liberation and to the freedom of all sentient beings. The consciousness that is infused with this aspiration to bring about the freedom of all beings is called the enlightened mind, or the mind of bodhicitta. The bodhisattva in their journey doesn't make any distinction between developing wisdom or developing compassion. Instead, there is an understanding that to be truly awake is actually to be truly sensitive and to be sensitive to be clear is to be free of division that to be awake to be open to be spacious is to be compassionate and to be compassionate is to be awake 
that there is no distinction possible between the heart and the mind that are awake. It is probably really quite extraordinarily difficult for us to think of ourselves in the light of traveling a bodhisattva's path. Our mind will produce a long catalog of reasons of why this is not possible for us. Why it is not possible for us to have this kind of aspiration or this kind of dedication or this quality of wisdom and compassion in our lives just now. We may say to ourselves, well, I have so many problems. I have so many problems and difficulties of my own that it is not possible for me to really extend myself to the problems of others. We may say to ourselves, well, clearly it is not possible for me really to offer great wisdom others, when I am not liberated myself. We may even say, of course, well, it's absolutely nonsense that there's ever the possibility that all beings can be liberated, that this is not possible in the world. There will always be a cycle and always be a world of people and beings who are not liberated. We may say to ourselves, because of all of this, I can never be like these other people. I can never be like a Dalai Lama. I can never be like a Mother Teresa. And in the realm of logic, of course, this is all, you know, this is all true. You know, it all seems very true. You know, it all seems very, makes a lot of sense. And it all works into a construct that feels comfortable for us. You know, that we then evolve a kind of strategy and a grand plan for ourselves, you know, because this is not possible. Therefore, you know, I will be doing this and I will be doing this and working with this problem and getting rid of this. And it all becomes in some way very comfortable for ourselves. I think it is very important to appreciate that the path of the Bodhisattva has absolutely no concern with logic. It's not interested in logic. simply not interested or concerned in any way. It is true, we will never be another Teresa. We will never be a Dalai Lama. They are who they are, just as we are who we are. We can only be ourselves. We can only be who we truly are, not what we think we are. But we can also only listen to our own hearts and our own minds, and through that listening, really grow in the spirit of awareness and the spirit of service. First, we must trust deeply that wisdom and compassion are really not the territories only of the saintly, only of the great masters, that we actually hold within ourselves. Despite all our objections, despite all the reasons why we cannot do it, that we actually hold within our own hearts and our own minds the seeds of wisdom and compassion which we can nurture to fruition. The path of the Bodhisattva is also not the territory of only great heroes or warriors in the spiritual life. 
the path of the Bodhisattva is the path of every single human being who has the capacity to love and the capacity to forgive. The path of every single human being who has the capacity to be awake. And the path of the Bodhisattva is also the path of every single human being who really yearns in their hearts to bring about an end to the unendurable pain in all its different forms that shadows our world, who genuinely cares for the well-being, for the happiness of others and of ourselves. We don't actually need any credentials to be a Bodhisattva. You don't need to have a long history of meditation experience. You don't need to have been able to total back a certain number of mystical experiences. You don't need to have any kind of portfolio of knowledge. You need no credential to travel this path. It is the path of compassion. It is also a path of celebration. It is a path of celebrating the possibilities of awakening that lie within each of us, that lie within all conscious beings. It is a celebrating, a path of celebrating our own capacity to let go, our own capacity for generosity, for service and for forgiveness, amidst the challenges of our own lives, amidst the challenges of our hearts and minds and the world that we live in. There's such a tendency in the spiritual life, there's such a tendency in our inner world to focus upon and to emphasize the unwholesome, the imperfect, the obstacles and the difficulties that seem to deny liberation. There's such a tendency to focus upon the seemingly bottomless depths of personal imperfection that plague us. And when we focus in that way, then the path of wisdom and the path of compassion seems to call for very concentrated efforts to transcend, to overcome, and to renounce all these endless imperfections that we encounter. And of course, when we get very involved, when we buy very much into that sort of structure and that sort of belief system, then it seems almost sacrilegious to think of celebration in the midst of so much misery. See, now happiness is later, compassion is later, wisdom is later. First, I must suffer. First, I must get through my suffering. That structure doesn't encourage us to ask whose suffering it is anyway. When we see that structure of focusing on the imperfect within ourselves, then instead of celebration, it often really feels more appropriate that self-punishment or self-denial is what we should actually be extending towards ourselves. And then compassion and wisdom, of course, are endlessly postponed. There is only one place for wisdom. There's only one place for compassion, there's only one time for wisdom, and there's only one time for compassion to be realized. And that is in the moment that we're experiencing and our response to it. 
How many opportunities do we have in a day, in a sitting, in a walking, to nurture and to deepen in our own capacities for understanding and our own capacities for compassion? Those opportunities are countless. Those opportunities for that deepening lie in the thoughts we so easily judge. They lie in the judgments that so frequently arise. Those opportunities lie in the relationship we have to the images that arise within ourselves that lead us to withdraw from another person or lead us to cut off inwardly. Those opportunities for wisdom and compassion arise, lie in those moments that we experience fear, that we experience doubt, and that we experience anger. Those opportunities lie in our contacts with the world around us here. When we hear a siren, when we hear one of the bombers flying overhead, they lie in in our relationship to the person on the retreat who seems to be such a source of distraction for us. Those opportunities for wisdom and compassion lie within our thoughts of others and how we hold the world around us. The path of the Bodhisattva is learning how to open in all moments to know and what we see around us is ourselves in another form, is who we might be in other circumstances. It's deepening in wisdom and deepening compassion. It's not a path of struggling to find the right actions, the right responses, the right words. It's not a path of struggling ever in our lives, of deciding who or where we should extend compassion to. It is always a path of trust, but the right actions, the right words, the right responses will always be born of an awakened heart. The Bodhisattva path is called the Great Vehicle. It is often called the Great Vehicle because it is so demanding of us. It is really not for only those who feel lukewarm about, those life, about this life. It is not for the spiritually indifferent. Because the path of the Bodhisattva does ask of us endless and unconditional giving, allowing, and generosity. And the path of the Bodhisattva asks of us endless and unconditional forgiveness and letting go and loving. Sometimes that seems too hard. It seems too hard to live in such a way. You know, it is not possible. It's much too difficult to live in such a way. It is much harder and much more painful not to live in such a way. Generosity and letting go and forgiveness and loving, they bring to us in our lives joy and freedom and warmth. The absence of those qualities brings pain, anger, denial, holding, selfishness, bring conflict and limitation. This is the primary lesson of wisdom. 
It's a primary lesson that all of us need to learn in our lives. And it's as we learn this lesson that really our hearts awaken, that compassion begins to emerge. Nurturing compassion is a conscious path. It's a path that does require of us a great deal of reflection and calmness and stillness. And there are, probably amongst many others, four very primary qualities of mind and heart that are very intrinsic to the development of compassion. One of those qualities is imagination. Another of those qualities is equanimity. The third is the qualities needed for compassion, wisdom. And the fourth is courage. We obviously can never know entirely or deeply what another person's experience actually feels like for them. No matter can any, no, n- neither can anyone else, no matter how close they are to us or how loving or how much empathy they have, actually know what pain or loss or conflict actually feels like to us. That doesn't mean or imply in any way that there is some sort of uncrossable divide between ourselves and another person. Imagination, the capacity for empathy, is the capacity that bridges that gap between us and others. Not the imagination of fantasy, of conjuring up images or producing artificial responses. But the quality of imagination, which is a kind of flexibility, a softness of our minds and our hearts, that enables us actually to be touched, to receive the pain or the difficulties or the suffering of others, or our own pain without any interference of judgment, of preconceived ideas, or of prejudice. Imagination is clearly linked to empathy. It is capacity, really, to extend the boundaries, the boundaries of our own consciousness, beyond the limitations of our individual experience. Our world is constantly seemingly unearthing one great horror after another, one great area of pain after another. And sometimes it seems we can become almost hardened. Empathy or imagination is actually what allows us to respond, to feel, to understand. You know, recently the the media has been full of these stories of the children three children in Brazil who live in the sewers who are, who are hunted for bounty by certain people in Brazil. It's difficult for us, of course, to perceive that level of pain. The world seems so different than ours. It's difficult for us to conceive of what it must be like to live in that way. But we have the capacity to experience fear. We know what that feels like. We have the capacity to experience 
loneliness and alienation. We know what that feels like. We know intuitively what the heart of another feels. This is the quality of empathy. It is the quality of imagination, not imagining something other than what is, but in some ways going through the kind of superficiality of our own images. In that, we are still. When we can actually feel, we can become actually profoundly still and receptive. And what we do actually sense is our common humanity. When we take away the external dress, even the external details of one experience from another, we know that fear is fear, that loss is loss, that pain is pain. There is not one single thing that any one of us can experience that hasn't been experienced before. There is not one single thing that another person can experience that we cannot also experience in our own lives. Just as loss and pain are loss and pain. Happiness is also happiness. Peace is also peace. Joy is also joy. That is also part of our common humanity. What response can we have in the face of that? Accept compassion. Out of that empathy, it is out of that empathy that a certain level of passion and inspiration is born. And that passion is needed to move us, to move us to serve, to move us to give, to move us to support, to move us to forgive. That passion emerges and finds a form in words, in thoughts, in actions, in the way that we extend ourselves towards others and towards ourselves. Without that empathy, so often our world is really bounded, bound, the boundaries of our world is our own individual experience, our limited goals and aspirations. It is empathy and it is passion that really allows us to step beyond the boundaries of that individuality. To know that we are a conscious participant in the creation of each moment. To know that deeply. That the quality of the world we live in, the quality of each moment, we are a conscious participant in its creation. That opens up enormous possibilities for us. It opens up a whole different way of seeing. We're not just formed by circumstances. We're not just moved by conditions. We are a conscious participant. The second quality of compassion is the quality of equanimity. Equanimity is not being distant. It's not being removed. It's not being uh, just detached or withdrawn from things. It's great to that and master. Once defined equanimity as being equally near to all things. Equanimity is very important. 
because some of, two of the greatest hindrances to compassion are aversion and attachment. Aversion or attachment to things, to people, to ourselves, to, to experiences. These two lead us to close down. Aversion leads us to close our hearts, to turn away from others, from ourselves. For aversion leads us to turn away from whatever offends us, whatever threatens us, whatever we just dislike rather than learning how to open our hearts, which is what compassion is about. Attachment has a very similar effect upon us. Attachment and aversion both create contraction. When there is attachment, strong attachment to a thought, to an experience, to a person, to pleasure. So often what we do is we want to defend it, we want to protect it, we want to pursue it. It doesn't matter what the consequence is. It doesn't matter whether it's at the expense of our own well-being or the well-being of others. Obsessive attachment means that we equally close down. We need wisdom. We need letting go. We need balance to bring about a certain appreciation of the subjectivity of our aversion, subjectivity of our attachment. This is where equanimity comes in, learning to develop that kind of balance. When there's no equanimity, we have only enemies and allies in the world, friends and strangers. And within those dualities, compassion is exceedingly difficult. It takes an immense equanimity to let go of our labels, to let go of the subjectivity of our reactions and our images, it is not difficult for us to reflect on what this means. Letting go, the letting go of equanimity, is an act of compassion. It's an act of compassion for ourselves. It's an act of compassion for the world around us. The third quality is the quality of courage. Compassion and openness and love, these are not easy challenges for us. It takes an enormous amount of courage to actually live in the spirit of compassion or to live in the spirit of love. It's hard for us often to open to pain, whether it's outer pain or whether it's inner pain. It seems so much more attractive at times just to avoid it, just to avoid the difficult, to find what's safer, to close down, to distract ourselves. Because pain, of course, sets off echoes of fear within us. It could happen, it happens to them, it could happen to me. What if I'm overwhelmed? What if I can't bear it? What if I can't deal with it? It's too much. It's too hard. Pain sets off doubt. Doubt in our capacity to embrace. Doubt in our capacity to forgive. Doubt in our capacity to let go. It takes immense courage and patience and perseverance to stay with the difficult without any fantasy, without any demands that we should have some magical formula that will heal it and fix it. So often when we encounter pain, one of the expressions of fear is the immediate desire to fix it, to fix it. How can I, how can I alter it? How can I fix it? Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes, too, our desire to fix it is more for our own well-being than for the well-being of another person. 
we would like them to stop being in pain so we can feel better about them not being in pain. I mean, sometimes it's really appropriate to have that really direct and immediate response of how can I alleviate pain? But sometimes pain is also part of our process, part of another person's growth. And it is not so much fixing it that is required. It is how to be there with it. How to be so open-hearted, how to be so present in the midst of that pain that that other person knows we are there, knows that support is there. And we offer them the gift of allowing them to heal themselves. This can be as much a part of compassion as having lots of magical formulas and solutions. Sometimes we want pain to come to a conclusion that's acceptable to us. Courage is needed for compassion. Just the ability to stay with what is without demand so that clarity can come, so that insight can come, so that healing can come. And the path of the Bodhisattva, third quality of wisdom, Wisdom is needed to see beyond the superficial. When we see only the superficial, what we end up with is just this great endless list of judgment we carry around within ourselves about what's right and wrong. And our, of course our judgments about what's right and wrong and what leads us to reject others, lead us to reject ourselves. And our judgments tell us a great deal about our own past histories and experiences. That's what our judgments tell us the story of, our past histories and our past experiences. Our judgments often really don't tell us much about the present moment at all. Our judgments often tell us very little about another person or ourselves in this moment. And our judgments, of course, reinforce separation between self and other. How can we honestly, in any way, pass judgment upon the fear or the pain or the rejection or the loneliness in another person that finds form in different actions and words. We cannot. We cannot in any way. And there's that wonderful Zen story about you know, a group of students in the monastery had all come to practice with this great Zen master. You know, and everybody was very righteous and you know, very holy and you know, very dedicated, and one of the students was caught stealing. And so the others all went very quickly and reported it to the master, expecting them to throw this. Obviously, this person was a misfit. He should be thrown out. And the master just ignored it. And the person was caught stealing, caught stealing again. And everybody signed a petition. They went back to the Zen master and they said, Well, look, you know, this is really not on. It's not what you're teaching us. Either he goes or we go. And the Zen master said, Well, really, it is better you go. Obviously, you know the difference between right and wrong. This poor person doesn't know the difference. Who's going to teach him if I don't teach him? We don't have the qualifications to pass judgment. Stories kind of story is endless. They tell us about the need to set aside the conditions for compassion, to have no hidden agendas, to have no conditions, <coughs> but every condition reinforces separation 
And really the path of self wisdom is to see the emptiness of those separations. Compassion is actually the teaching of no self. It is the teaching of the emptiness of self. I'd like to read you poem. That's not a poem. Any bodhisattva who undertakes the practice of meditation should cherish one thought only. In in understanding perfect wisdom, I will liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe. And yet, when vast, uncountable, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, truly no being has been liberated. Why? Because no bodhisattva who is a true bodhisattva entertains such concepts as self or others. Thus, there are no sentient beings to be liberated, and no self to attain perfect wisdom. Humility. I am not actually going to do this. I am actually not going to liberate myself, nor am I actually going to liberate anybody else. But all those notions of self and other are only false, are only aspects of the unawakened heart and the mind. And to let them go, to let go of those separations, to let go of those ideas, to let go of those structures, those self, other, means just to be. It means just to be, just to be awake. To know that in being awake, there is the organic and the natural unfoldment of wisdom and compassion that truly touches and that the Bodhisattva path, the path of the Bodhisattva, is nothing more complicated than the path of being awake with the deepest sincerity, the deepest sense of dedication, and knowing that there is nothing more precious we can offer to ourselves, knowing there is nothing more precious that can be offered anywhere than the gift of wakefulness. May all beings abide in stillness. May all beings live with an open heart. May all beings live with compassion. We have just two minutes sitting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.